everyone knows that the anti-foods don't benefit our health. But today we're going to go beyond empty calories, beyond lack of expiration dates, and look at another way in which they actually harm you, which is by upsetting the balance of good and bad bacteria in the gut. From hand sanitizers to dirty births, we're going to dive deep into the topic of microbiota with Dr. Brett Finlay. He is a PhD and author of Let Them Eat Dirt on today's Nutrition Heretic podcast. So I'm sure you've heard that as you age, it gets harder to lose weight. Well, that's total bull because my friends, Laura and Veronica Chow's, they can prove it. They're a mother-daughter duo, and they've lost 125 pounds between the two of them at ages 50 and 20. And they've kept it off for over two years without starvation, deprivation, or hunger. So now you can learn their system and a whole lot more with a free 10-day trial to their online membership. They'll give you the diet, the recipes, classes, and more. Sign up today at nutritionheretic.com forward slash utmost diet. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well being. Hello, this is Adrienne Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic, and welcome to the show. Uh, today, I wanted to talk about uh, nasty children. Uh, I was at a, it was actually my daughter's first birthday party. We had it at a living history farm. And there was one mom who was, upon opening the goodie bag, feeding her child crayons. And uh, a few minutes later, I caught him sitting behind an area that a horse had just plowed and pooped through, eating the dirt. And while I know that germs are our friends, I kind of stop at eating crayons and poopy dirt. And so for that reason, I wanted someone who is an actual expert on the subject. And so today's guest heretic is uh, Dr. Brett Finlay, and he is the author of Let Them Eat Dirt. And he's going to tell me whether my instinct to not feed my child feces-infested dirt is good or if I'm doing my children a disservice by doing that. Welcome to the show, Dr. Finlay. Hi, Adrian. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. This is, uh, it was actually, uh, my assistant, Crystal, who had told me about your book. And, uh, we were really, you know, this is, this has been, this is, I think, something that everybody's talking about, uh, because we are recognizing that we have over sanitized ourselves. And I think you would agree with that. 
Yep, for sure. And that, uh, you know, our children are suffering for it. It's not, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, not the only solution, but it's, a, it's, it's one piece, a very important piece of this bigger picture of our children gradually becoming less healthy than their grandparents were. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of a hangover. I mean, the last hundred years, we've been on this quest to clean up our world because we know the, that gets rid of infections. I mean, that's how kids used to always die, and yet very few kids die of infections. So in a sense, it's been wonderful. Uh, you know, our, our kids don't die of what they used to always die of. But, but the, the problem is that we now realize that, oops, this had unintended consequences in our, you know, our sanitizing all our world and safe food and safe water and antibiotics. Um, we, we knew that decrease in factions, but we now realize that we actually are obliterating a lot of the microbes that we have a species have actually evolved with. And so our kids don't get these microbes early in life. And ironically, that's actually having a big impact on the diseases that if you look around our world that we live in today, you know, obesity, asthma, diabetes, allergies, inflammatory bowel disease, autism, these all have microbial links. And it's just been stunning in the last five years to realize that we actually really do need, need these microbes early in life to basically have a healthy body. Right. Uh, you know, as you're talking, so many things have come to mind. Uh, one of the, the first ones was a study done, I believe it may have been on pigs, uh, that this was, gosh, going back probably 20 years now, where they fed a group of pigs a sterile diet. Basically, you know, kind of a human, you know, what, what has evolved to the American diet, which is, you know, stuff that's all in boxes and bags and cans, right? So that all that stuff is sterilized and basically they died well, because, because, <laughs> because, they, because they, they had, an, they left them with a completely sterile gut. <laughs> well, I, unless they were born sterile, I mean, you know, from the second you're born, you do acquire microbes, but True. we do know the diet has a profound impact. I mean, you know, the expression, you are what you eat, while really your microbes are what you eat because they're the ones that break down most of the food and depending on what you eat. So our Western diet, which consists, as you say, of a lot of white sugars, white fat and processed foods, that's actually very simple foods. And they're, they're absorbed out of the intestine really high up in the small intestine, yet all the microbes are way down low in the, in the large intestine. And so, ironically, by eating all this white sugar and fat, this doesn't even actually get down to the microbes, and they actually starve. So, uh, it's boring, I know, but basically, you know, the idea of eating, you know, fruit, vegetables, legumes, fiber, nuts, etc., part, major part of that reason is that that stuff is harder to digest and it takes the microbes down in the lower intestine to break these things down. So, we really have to rethink for a whole bunch of reasons what we eat because, you know, these, quote, healthy diets, they're not just healthy for you. They're actually healthy for your microbes, which actually does make you even healthier. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, I just interviewed a woman. Uh, she is a GAPS practitioner. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that protocol, but it is one of it's one of the more successful ways that parents are healing their children with autism and, you know, mm -hmm. dyslexia, dyspraxia, you name it, you know, many of these uh, neurological type disorders. And uh, the creator of that diet is a woman from originally from Russia. And she says that it, there used to be a time where every bite of our food contained microbes. 
Mm-hmm. And we've we've shifted that dramatically to this this almost completely sterile, like you say, full of white yeah. sugar and and you know highly processed. Uh, I hesitate to call them foods, <laughs> but they're so good, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that's the thing is, I, we've been off of it for so long that it's not. It really doesn't taste good to us. And um, and my kids, they were not raised on it. They see right. their friends have it every once in a while. They get the curiosity, but. Nine times out of ten, they're disappointed. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one thing we get into the book is the idea is that you know start them early and you know teach teach them what what's really good, you know, so they can actually kids will actually enjoy fruit and vegetables. Believe it or not, you know, um, yeah, I really, I mean, our whole society think that we have some serious nutritional issues, and we used to think you know you'd eat fruit and vegetables because that gave you the vitamins and you know the nutrients you need. And what we now realize piled on top of that is that you also need all these foods to feed your microbes and give you lots of diversity in your microbes, which then actually benefits you. Right. Right. Absolutely. And uh, but by the way, my kid yelled at me a couple of weeks ago because I was in a rush and I didn't make a salad. So <laughs> I think I think wow. I've, wow. I, th- I think that uh, I, I achieved my mission and <laughs> getting them to enjoy, you know, just regular food, real food. I mean, there is no real yeah. food. It used to just be food. Right. So <laughs> there's yeah. there's food and there's the anti food. So. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, like you say, you start them early and even, you know, honestly, I always say to people, just eat the best quality you can afford. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be so organic necessarily, although that could help, uh, depending on who's defining organic, uh, when they're raising that food. Uh, but, uh, I have, I, I love, I love to pat myself on the back that I can feed anybody's child or picky eater, uh, just do the best you can and the the food takes care of itself. People don't realize that you don't need to really doctor it up a lot if it's <laughs> if it's fresh. And um you know it doesn't take it's not that much of a learning curve as as we've been led to believe. So well, um probably have more microbes on it too. Yeah, well there you go. Absolutely. Package, you know, ultra processed. Yeah. Absolutely. So um you know when when people think about germs, right? They're whether it's good or bad, they think about the infectious disease. Yep. Um, when, you know, talking about this whole sterilizing of the body, like what other non-infectious diseases? I mean, you did, you did give us a little bit of a, of a segue into that, but you know, what are some of the other non, non-infectious diseases that yeah. are going to appear? Well, when you say the word germ, that, has bad connotations that generally means a microbe that can make you sick. Yet, ironically, very few microbes actually will make you sick. There's less than 100 microbacterial species that cause disease in humans, yet you have probably 1,000 or 2,000 or 10,000 different microbes on you, which are just happily living in and on you. So I think germs is a bit misused. I mean, I think it should be safe for the ones that we really don't want that cause disease. So... But related to that, this dearth of early life microbes is is leading to many of the diseases that we see, and if you want to call them Western society diseases. So let's take, for example, asthma. When I was a kid many years ago, nobody had asthma. We had one kid in our school, and 
Um, must be mutant, right? Because you had to have a puffer. We didn't know what these things were. Right. Now <laughs> you go to the playground, it's like a kid takes a puffer, runs up a slide, and hands a puffer to the kid next to him, right. and then takes right. a puff and sort of passes it around. Asthma has just gone through the roof in our society in the last 50 years, yet we have not genetically changed as a species, so something has happened. Yeah, and we now know that, you know, again, just talking about asthma, uh, for example, the fact, simple fact how you're born by cesarean section or vaginally, you will have a 20% higher rate of getting asthma if you're born by C-section. If you have a dog versus no dog, you have a 20% less chance of getting asthma. If you're breastfed versus bottle fed, you have a 20% less chance of asthma. If you get antibiotics in the first year of life, you have a 20% higher chance of getting asthma. So all these things are pointing to these microbes involved in this, you know, in asthma. And it's not just asthma. We know it's allergies. We know it's Weight gain, obesity, because the microbes metabolize your food, which is obviously related to type 2 diabetes, um, all the inflammatory bowel diseases. There's close microbial links. And a more contentious area, but it's getting a lot of attention now, is this whole gut and brain axis. And mm -hmm. we now realize that microbes actually play a role in how the brain development develops. So there's been experiments done in animals that are, we call them germ-free. They're basically born by sterile by C-section and kept sterile. So they're microbe-free animals. These things, their brains don't develop normally. They have serious behavioral issues. And we also know that, you know, getting in, there's some amazing experiments like stress and anxiety and depression. You can induce these in, in animals like mice and rats and actually do a fecal transfer from a depressed mouse or rat into a normal mouse or rat. That animal will get depressed just by doing a fecal transfer. And all you've done is swap the microbes. And there's many hints in humans um, that, you know, overuse of antibiotics. There's a huge study just out in the UK showing that increased antibiotic use is heavily correlated with depression and anxiety and stress. Absolutely. And, yeah. And then, then that takes you into the, the, the harder realm of autism and ADHD and things, which are, of course, increasing. And there's, there's smoking guns that there's microbes involved in this. But I think the, the verdict is still out. There seems to be some involvement, but we don't know for sure yet. Well, all I know is that the the uh, practitioners that I've been working with and who have trained me over the last twenty years, we've all been talking about gut bacteria <laughs> and and uh, brain health. You know, particularly with the um, autistic uh, autism rise, and yeah. and every child that ha that I know of that's been treated this way has recovered or is on the road to recovery or or has made you yeah. know leaps and bounds uh, above their friends who didn't have any change in, yeah, well, what in, in what they get is the done. food is it the food affecting the microbes and you know we know that autistic kids for example they have different microbes in their gut but right. they also have different eating habits and stuff so cause and effect is still but there's an awful lot of stories of people saying my kid was normal and they went on antibiotics and became autistic and then right. they did a fecal transfer and they got better kind of thing they're not done under clinical conditions but you certainly hear this out there and so it's, it, I mean, it's, it's an intense scientific investigation. Now people are chasing this down and saying, is this real or not? But I think even, even as you age, dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, these things ironically are now having microbial components to them. Absolutely. And one amazing thing for the more older listeners is that brushing your teeth, you do that, you, you basically cut your risk of Alzheimer's by 22 to 65% by just brushing your teeth three times a day versus if you don't. Wow. Now, that has to do with the, you know, the gum health, the periodontitis, yeah, for sure. and this causes seeps into your body. All the microbial products causes inflammation, which then basically leads to dementia. So right. 
it's, it's a complex world. But well, I mean, I, when I think about people with uh, periodontal disease, I don't necessarily think of somebody who's eating a salad every day either. So, you know, just true, in, far, in, in, in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, just these highly refined you know, sugar diets. Uh, a lot of the autistic children that, that I have, um, it, well, the autistic children that I, that I've, um, you know, worked with or my colleagues have worked with, uh, mm -hmm. most of them have come in with, you know, juicy fruit in their back pocket or whatever candy mm -hmm. of the day as their breakfast. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there's, there's, too, there's so definitely a, a, a strong correlation between just this, this unadulterated, uh, highly refined mm -hmm. foods that are just, you know, they're, they, they're like a punch in the face <laughs> of, of yeah, sugar. Well, and, I mean, they're, they're cheap calories, but I think we have to rethink food in general because of, and, and also putting it in the context of feeding the microbes instead of feeding the human as well, because, because we know that's actually plays a huge role and, and you can really, the fastest way to shift your microbes is shift your, your diet. Like if you decide to go on a diet within a day, that is reflected by the microbes in your gut. And um, I think we all kind of know this when you eat something, you go traveling to a foreign country, you, you know, you can see the results of that at the other end. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we have to rethink this whole concept of nutrition and calories, not a calorie. Right, exactly. Well, I think for me, the the I want to say the smartest thing that we can do is go back to a time where we had decent sanitation and our diet was more reflective of things that actually could grow in nature uh, and and use that as our starting point. If that makes yeah. sense. You know what I'm saying? Just getting just further and further away from the farm. That's very true. Um, but there is another concern that, that's come up. And I think it's something that is not really talked about yet. We might think about and that that is the fact that each generation get cleaner and cleaner. And the question becomes, can we go back the way having the microbes that your great grandparents had, you know, and um, the, the weird concept that maybe, you know, each 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 generation has fewer and fewer different kinds of microbes that maybe we can't go back that way. And maybe these are endangered species and maybe we ought to protect our intestinal microbes because other than, you know, a road trip to Africa or something, we might not actually be able to repopulate or repopulate as we're very fond of saying <laughs> you know, the, the microbes that, 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 you know, our ancestors had. So ideally we go back to the, those kind of microbes, but of course, without the disease causing ones that, 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 that you know, that, that, that came back then with, with it. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I learned from, uh, Dr. Campbell McBride is that, uh, many of the insidious, dangerous, you know, germs, microbes, uh, whatever you want to call them that, that are taking over now, uh, may actually serve a purpose in smaller quantities. Yeah. So we're, so, you know, it, it's not necessarily eradicating all of them as much as it may be just keeping the, keeping the good bacteria strong enough to keep those in control. Things like E. coli, yeah. uh, or, um, uh, or Candida albicans, you know, in small amounts, they're harmless and may even serve a purpose. But mm -hmm. the fact is that we've destroyed the things that normally control them and we've, and we've continued to feed them this highly processed diet that is encouraging their overgrowth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two points. That's something that scientifically we call competitive exclusion. And we know that good microbes are very good at outcompeting bad ones. And for example, 
you know, if you know how many times women that take an antibiotic for something and they end up with a uh, yeast infection because what happens is that antibiotic works, you know, wipes out the normal microbes and they're more susceptible to these yeast infections. So um, we know that this whole competitive exclusion is is really important for skin infections, you know, all over the body, um, wherever there are microbes. So so I think you know you really do have to pamper your good microbes. The other thing we know is that basically the more microbes you have on you, different kinds, the better you are. We call this diversity, and yeah. there's this high diversity of microbial composition. And one of the easiest ways to get high diversity is eat a diverse diet because you'll be feeding all these different kinds of microbes. So, you know, and, and again, as you know, in our society, we've gone to a not very diverse diet a lot of the time. And this has the unintended consequences of just selecting for a few microbes. And as you say, this, this you know, just have a few dominating species, you know, it's, it's not good in terms of a healthy microbial society. Right, right, right. You know, another thing that comes to mind when you talk about whether or not we can actually go back, and I'm sure my listeners are fed up of me talking about this, but I've been studying something called Korean natural farming, which, you know, then starts to dovetail with other uh, systems of permaculture and, and regenerative agriculture in general. And uh, it, one of the things that I'm learning, particularly through this uh, Korean method, is the balance how to encourage the, the, the correct balance of microbes in soil. And it's really quite fascinating because when you look at regenerative agricultural models overall, whether it's, you know, uh, ramiel, uh, chipped wood or, uh, Korean natural farming, uh, or, um, like, um, Alan Savory's, uh, techniques, uh, there is this, there is an ability to quite rapidly replenish topsoil and to create the balance that crops actually need to outpace the weeds around them. And I think this is, I think that's a really powerful demonstration of what we could achieve in our bodies if we understood better how to provide what in in the farming methods are, are considered homeopathic amounts of the right nutrients to encourage the growth of the right microbiota in the yeah, soil and then and therefore analogy, in us yeah that analogy holds if you think you know the way we farm now where this massive swath of a monoculture type thing we know that from a soil micro point of view that's not good you would ideally have you know diverse plants grown in different areas and then that's why you rotate crops, for example, so you can get a lot of different microbes going there. And I think the same applies for what we eat. Um, and you know, the concept, it's not hard that, you know, if you eat a bunch of different things, that you're going to select for a bunch of different microbes, you eat the same thing, you will just get a few microbes that you're selecting for. So, yeah, that concept, I think, that analogy is really good. Yeah, so I, I think I think there's I think that when once we get these two systems, uh, you know, overall to to converge, and we start to recognize that connection more deeply, and you know what works for one must work for the other to some extent, right? Because that's what uh, we're going to be feeding on. <laughs> yeah, well, soil microbes. I mean, it's important to have a diverse soil microbes because that's going to then come up on the food and the potatoes and the carrots or whatever else you're eating. Right. And you know, I, I think. You know, we we know that we're very, very influenced by the environment we live in. And so even, you know, having a monoculture of bacteria in a soil crop is not good for the food point of view, for our point of view. 
Right. And, and I actually made a faux pas recently because I am also using this Japanese composting system called Bokashi, which is essentially made of uh, lactic acid bacteria with molasses on wheat bran. And uh, it's and it's basically you can compost food in less than five weeks using this system. That's how aggressively this uh, this system works. Uh, but what happened is you get this kind of, uh, you know, a liquid that drains off of it, sort of like a compost tea. And I took just a tiny bit of it and I diluted it with two gallons of water. I'm talking like a teaspoon to two gallons of water. And I put it on a couple of plants. And apparently, because that's not working on the fungal side, it, it works uh, more by uh, bacteria. It it almost killed my plants. <laughs> like made the leaves fall off and it was described to me by actually someone who was another guest on the show uh chris trump that that what happened what i ended up accidentally doing was shocking it almost as if i had put roundup on it so you know really understanding the types of microbes that we're working with uh is is essential as well and understanding you know where where to balance which type of microbes I think is is also something it's that we a need challenge to challenge because right now we could okay gross alert but you could take a little dab of feces and put and put it in the swab and we can actually analyze all the microbes that are in there. There's ways of sequencing we can do that without growing them, so we can actually get a list of which microbes are in your intestine versus someone else's. Right. But the problem is with that list is we don't know what that really means yet, and we know that even though you and I are ninety nine point nine nine percent identical. Although I guess we differ by a chromosome, but other than that, <laughs> um, you know, most humans are, are virtually identical genetically. There's just a tiny number of changes, yet all our microbes are very different. At best, someone is maybe 50% similar to someone else. So if you believe the tenet that microbes are important and, and the other tenet that all, you know, things are, things are conserved in biology, why the heck are we each so different? So that's led to the idea that really sort of instead of a list of the microbes in your gut, there should be a list of all the genes those microbes encode. So what, what are they capable of doing? Right. And it doesn't matter of which microbe is capable of doing it. You know, like, I don't know, a, a city, you know, it doesn't matter if one person is collecting garbage or another, the garbage will get collected kind of thing. And so we're starting to rethink microbes instead of a list from a microbiologist's point of view, here's a list of all the names of the microbes. We're now starting to think of the whole composition of, okay, you need these 10,000 genes expressed in your gut to have healthy digestion, right. and it really doesn't matter which microbe does it. And so that's why, you know, we're so similar, yet our, you know, our fecal microbes will be so different. They're still doing the same things. Right. And see, to me, this is a better, a better uh, definition, or not definition, mm -hmm. but a, a, a better expression of, you know, when people say something is hereditary, you know, oh, my child's asthmatic because my grandfather had asthma or I have allergies or whatever. And to me, the expression is not necessarily in the genes as much as it is. They've inherited more than just this genetic pattern from you. There's the you know, if you don't have it, for example, uh, you know, when you test the microbes of parents of autistic children, just going back to that again, uh, you find that somebody's got Asperger's, somebody's got dyslexia. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's not, it's not uncommon to find relational 
things there. And then, of course, they're all eating the same diet. So, <laughs> you know, it, if you, yeah, if you well, don't I mean, have it, it's kind of hard to hand it over to your kids. They, they could have, you know, similar I don't know, religious beliefs, which are, you know, farming techniques. I, right. I think one thing that, that's come out when we're writing this book that really I found quite fascinating is, yes, we inherit the genes from our parents, but we also now realize you actually inherit the microbes, a lot of your microbes from your mother. Absolutely. And so not only is the mother passing along her genes, um, she's actually passing along her microbes too. And we're, we're you know, um, you know, the, the concepts of, you know, even, you know, if a mother happens to be obese, their microbes are shaped a certain way, that kid stands a good chance of inheriting those microbes and they stand a higher chance of obesity by having those microbes because they inherited these obesity microbes, if you want to call it that. So, so this is really shaking up how we think of genetics as not just being, you know, human encoded, but also the, having these, you inherit your, your parents' microbes, which, which is a sort of a new concept in, in evolution. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you even talked about before when a child is born by C-section versus vaginally, how that's going to change the, uh, the terrain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's still a ways off, but you know, this is, I think this is more of where we need to start thinking, which is, uh, like you said, that you're not just inheriting the, the genes. It's, it's the microbes. It's the, uh, the, the foundation, the stuff that your food wants to latch onto. Uh, and then you complicate it. Actually, I really love the fact that you had uh, a section in there on pregnancy and it, dirty birth, but also, uh, uh, the, um, strep B. Yeah, groupie strep. Yeah, yeah, yeah groupie strep. Too. And uh, so, you know, that that actually talk to me a little bit about that. Um, I was I was overjoyed to see that section. <laughs> no, seriously. Section, right? it's so, so, just to remind your listeners, you know, groupie strep is it's one of those bad germs, and you know, twenty to forty percent of women can carry it, and then you stand if you're born, the kid can can get it, and then one percent of those kids can actually get a groupie strep infection, which is a terrible infection. So the way we currently do it is we test for the presence of, of this groupie strep in a woman's vagina pre-birth. And if she's positive, most, most modern medical practice is you treat with antibiotics, which causes an 80% decrease in passing this, this along to the kid and therefore saving this small fraction of kids from getting it. But, you know, that's, but, but of course you're giving antibiotics at birth, which is really mucking up the, the, the microbes this kid is going to inherit. And also we know these antibiotics also go into the fetus as it's born. So there's issues there. And there's some, so the question is, what do you do? And this is where it gets really hard. There are some early studies coming out indicating that, you know, lactobacilli probiotics seem to displace groupie strep. This is this competitive exclusion concept again, that if you had the these good bugs, it gives groupie strep a harder chance to actually hang on to. But, um, you know, right now, I, there's a lot of studies going on. I can't counsel either way whether you should or should not have antibiotics. There are some people that are biobanking their vaginal microbes so that then they can actually um, store these things. And if they have, say, for example, have to have a C-section or get treated with antibiotics, you can then recolonize these kids with these vaginal um, microbes post-antibiotics um, so a way of sort of giving them back the, the microbes that they missed out on. Right. So there's lots of things that are being tried now in this area. And it's, it's, it, but the, the, the final verdict isn't there yet. I mean, we were trying all sorts of, we realize antibiotics are not good. We also realize group B strep infection is, is, is absolutely terrible from, um, from a kid's point of view. So there's lots of different ways that are being tried to see how do we get around this. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's going to become, uh, you know, just, 
more important as time goes on to uh, find so other solutions because I, I am of the the mind that there's always another way to do things, right? There's, right. <laughs> you know, we've only been yep. given one um, one option really in this country, uh, but uh, chances are other countries would have. Yeah, you know, they may have a protocol. Maybe they don't test for it at all. I'm not. I'm not sure. Standard in Canada with the with the, um, the the midwives, especially to do the the vaginal swabs, especially being born by C-section, so that the kid acquires the vaginal microbiota upon birth. You take I mean, it's gross, but you take a vaginal swab and then you put that in the kid's mouth and right. expose that kid to the microbes they would have normally experienced in in a, in a in a vaginal birth as opposed to C-section. And this is being experimented with with group B strep. I have not seen any data, and I don't know any studies saying yay or nay yet. But as you say, it's a different way of doing things. But, but I think knowing what we know now, we got to think of these other ways. Absolutely, that actually brings me to the the feces talk. Um, we, we've we've brought that word up a lot, and a couple of months back, I was semi I don't know if outraged what by it, but I was a little bit disturbed. Um, but in light of reading your book, it makes more sense now. Uh, and actually, I know somebody who sells these poop pills. Uh, there are, I know that there's some studies on, uh, using the feces of a thin person to, to give to overweight people so that they will colonize with thin bacteria. Uh, it's still to be proven in humans. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so, so let's talk fecal transfers. I mean, it may be crap to you, but it's my bread and butter, and so we like we like it a lot. Mm, so, bread and butter will never taste the same again. Think of me all the time. Um, so yeah, I mean, the way this started out, where um, there's this infection that people get, um, especially going for surgery, you take antibiotics so the surgeon doesn't cause an infection. And um, which is good in that sense, but we now realize these antibiotics also wipe out the microbes, and especially in older people, they get clustered in difficile or C. diff, which is a really terrible infection. Mm -hmm. Now, this infection, it's part of C. diff is actually often present in your gut in small numbers and doesn't cause any infection because all the other microbes exclude it. But if you take an antibiotic, you wipe out the good microbes and the bad ones come up and this thing takes over and it can cause a really a life-threatening infection. So... This disease is caused by taking antibiotics. So traditionally, the way they tried to treat it was with antibiotics, right? Hey. Um, but the problem is <laughs> fight that fire with fire. <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah. So what they got? They got a big bonfire. Basically, it doesn't work. Works maybe twenty percent. So then they started. They they realized, well, okay, this is because we've gotten rid of the good microbes. So maybe we can do a fecal transplant, squish these other good bugs in, and it'll 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 work. And it works beautifully. You get like a ninety five percent cure rate in what is a lethal disease, often lethal disease, stunning. And and the data is overwhelming. So that's now become standard practice for for C diff. So that was the first real medical proof that fecal transfers work. Now, of course. People see this as, well, let's try it for inflammatory bowel disease. Let's try it for autism. Let's try it for all these other things. But the problem is that C. diff is actually, to say it, but it's really kind of a wussy pathogen. It, it, we knew that you could pretty much add any bug into it and you will knock it out. So that's why it works so well. But think about inflammatory bowel disease. You have a gut that's already inflamed. And you're then trying to put in good microbes. You're kind of asking, it's kind of like putting microbes on a bonfire or a barbecue, tell them to put it out and then reestablish and take over and, you know, put the fire out and colonize. 
So it's a big ask. So now what we realize with fecal transfers is you have to know about who the donors are. Like there's some, sometimes a donor works great and sometimes it doesn't. And that's what we're seeing in these fecal transfer experiments. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. So I think where we're kind of stuck back to is we have to rethink what is a good donor. Like this person, they always work and this one, they never work. So you can go back and say, well, what bugs do they have versus these don't? So that's where the field is now. So, you know, they're, they're all the rage. Lots of people are trying them in many different diseases. But I think they're, they're running into the donor problem because each person's different. And you'll read studies where, you know, it wasn't working. Then someone walked in the donor, donor B walked in, and suddenly they got the magic juice and it works great. And so you get to publish a study because it worked. But so I think we've got to know more about, you know, who the donor is, what these microbes are. Because where we're going to get to is we're going to get, as you say, these poop pills. We're going to get beyond that. We're going to get to a defined population. Here's a pill of 30 microbes we know that you should take if you're at risk for, you know, you pick your favorite disease. And then those those microbes will actually colonize. They're from the gut. They will set up camp, and then they will, you know, give you the benefits. So it's a bit of hit and miss now for everything except C. diff with fecal transfers. Right. It's a great right. concept. Right. Well, yeah, I was going to say when you were talking about C. diff, because I've had, it's funny, I, I have a lot, I've had a lot of uh, clients over the years who kind of straddle two lines, right? So they come to me, but they just don't believe that food can do that much. So they're still seeing, you know, their doctor or whatever. And so I've had a couple of people end up with C. diff and every single one of them blamed whatever I was doing. Well, it wasn't like that crazy amount of people, but they blamed whatever I was doing. And then I found out one worked in a hospital. Another one had taken an antibiotic for something. Another one took another drug for something. And they, you know, three or four of them ended up with C. diff from various uh, hospital encounters. And uh, so I, you know, treated them the way that I would with um, enteric coated um, probiotics and uh, mm-hmm. a few other things. And, Within a couple of days, they were, you know, like two days, literally, they were better. However, um, you, I guess what I'm wondering about the pills and grant is, are, are we looking at something to be a one shot approach? Mm. Because, you know, in the, in the holistic and naturopathic communities, people are healing their gut bacteria, at least enough that they, feel normal as as normal can be you know the rashes go away the asthma goes away the autism goes away the you know joint pains you name it ibd or ibs all of that everything is is going away uh but it's rigorous work uh it involves over the counter or or um pharmaceutical grade probiotics uh you know d- supplementing certain nutrients the whole foods diet um you know including actually you know a lot of bone broths which is one of the buzzwords today uh and and other animal foods as well as the the plant foods uh and they're seeing results you know when when we look at something a solution like poop pills are we trying to avoid having to have people do all the other stuff is it is it that effective that People can just kind of go back to their old habits or, you know, is this mm-hmm. intended to, to work in conjunction with other uh, other modalities and other approaches and other solutions? Well, I think with C. diff, it's pretty simple. And then generally speaking, you know, you know, a fecal transfer will be enough to recolonize the gut and displace it and actually work. With all the others we talked about is there's a lot of discussion. How many times do we have to transfer? There's a study out of Australia where they're doing it every second day for God knows how long for inflammatory bowel disease and actually showed great results. 
And I, I think what you're pointing to is the whole complexity of what you're trying to do is really reestablish a normal, healthy gut microbe. And as you point out, this is very complex and takes many different things. It takes the diet, it may take probiotics, it may take feces. And, and I mean, one of my pet peeves is that, you know, I say a vaginal microbe that uses a probiotic like lactobacillus, you're asking it to go into the intestine and you're, you're taking it with 100 billion every day. None of them stick because that's why you have to take it every day. Right. And I right. think those are the those are the wrong. I'm waiting for probiotic 2.0s to come out, which is, a say, a gut microbe that came from a human gut. It's designed to live in there. You can take it. It'll take hold. It knows it's in the gut. It'll divide and multiply. Whereas the current ones, you have to take them every day because they don't stick at all. And they just right. secrete it out. Well, so I think part of the reason. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. So we can get smarter in our probiotic design, and I think that's what we're going to start to see, where we say, okay, you are missing. Like our own work with asthma, we found that, you know, three-month-old kids, if they lack these four microbes, they basically were going to get asthma. If they, if they uh, had those microbes, they wouldn't get asthma. So that begs the question, can you then test a kid and then add these four microbes back so that you can prevent them from getting asthma later right. in life? So, right. so that's where the fields are starting to go in all these diseases. We, we're going to define the, the – we know these microbes will do this, and then those will be what will be in the poop pills of the future, mm. will be the, the, the right microbes instead of just this shotgun approach. We'll try anything. Right. And even in diet, I mean, you know, if you change your diet, you're selecting for many different bacteria. It's not a targeted approach. You're just hoping that, you know, the good one's in there with a whole bunch of other ones. The right. diet changes. We're not that smart yet. Right. I think one of the one of the missing pieces for a lot of people when they are taking probiotics is that they, because this is the way I've learned it and the way that I've, you know, worked for the last 20 years, which is that they take the probiotics, which, by the way, 20 years ago were not, did not exist according to the standard, you know, line of the AMA. You know, they just yeah. did not, it didn't exist. Anybody who said it, who said anything about probiotics and, and, uh, good, uh, gut flora was a quack, right? So ac enter Activia and now it exists. Okay, so we've taken that it exists, but I, I think what's the, what what I've seen as the missing component is is what you alluded to before, which is the inflammation in the gut. So it's sort of like that same. I forget how you said it exactly. I'm just going to say it's somebody you know peeing on a bonfire, <laughs> trying to put it out, right? So so you know instead of instead of you know, doing whatever you need to get it under control and, and get rid of the excess of bad guys and calm the inflammation. They're just throwing the pro probiotics on top of something that's not prepared to take it up. That's right. So there's a lot of discussion. Well, maybe say inflammatory bowel disease, you should be taking the anti-inflammatory, which will dampen the inflammation at the same time you then try and colonize these microbes. So, so uh, we put up a website for the book, letthemeatdirt.com, and on there, I've linked it to a really good study that basically it, it cites all the double-blind, placebo-controlled trials of probiotics that have worked for various diseases. Mm. So this, these are all the ones that Western medicine says, yes, these actually have worked. Now, you know, probiotics, they get a mixed bag because they're not regulated the same as, as FDA-regulated drugs. So you can claim more. And so they've, they've certainly taken a hit in that area. But there are there's no doubt that sometimes they work. And so this is really neat because it sort of shows the studies where these probiotics actually do work yeah. in you know, a clinical medical setting. And 
you can't argue with that. That is our current standard of proof for something that works in Western medicine, and, and some of them do. So I think there, there is hope there. But like I say, I think we can get a heck of a lot smarter, and we don't assume that lactobacillus will cure everything from skin wrinkles oh, to, totally. to, 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 you know, and when one microbe does it all. I think that's a, that's a myth, too. I think I also think probiotics of the future will not be a single microbe. That um, It will be a mixture of 20, 30, 40 different ones that work as a community. Because right. the way the probiotic field works now is a company has their favorite probiotic, and they ask scientists around the world to try it, anything that they can possibly get it to work in. And in the future, I think we'll be looking at mixes of microbes that, that have a even better beneficial effect. And I think you'll see a bigger bounce in probiotic effectiveness and I think it'll get more accepted by sort of Western medicine type means. Well, yeah, definitely in, um, in, at least in this country, in the holistic sphere, there's at least for, well, even in the beginning, um, like for me, the beginning, which was a little over 20 years ago, uh, there, they were already using multiple strains of bacteria and there's definitely been a, a, a tendency towards more of that. Uh, you know, like a, a mm-hmm. much more diversity uh, in in what's being offered, at least on the professional level, maybe not as much, uh, you know, as far as what you can pick up in the regular vitamin store. Uh, but there's definitely been a trend towards that. And, and uh, you know, I do, I'm, I'm leaning more and more, I'm leaning towards something that you're also sort of uh, discussing here, which is, like you said, the shotgun approach, we're just going to overwhelm the system with with all of these microbes, you know, we're going to put 50 billion, <laughs> you know, you uh, to make it work. Right. Exactly. Day, according to the label, but of that, there's not necessarily hundred billion viable microbes. I've had well, there's that. played them out and say, well, actually there's not quite that many that they say they're not alive. Right. Well, you know, this is, and this is, this is where I'm going with this, which is that there's the, um, that, that, uh, the lessons, like I'm saying from Korean natural farming is that you really only need a homeopathic amount. You know, maybe, you know, maybe it's at the lower doses because we are finding out that, you know, with a lot of things, uh, and we see this where we're more readily admitting this with plants than we are with humans, that sometimes it's the homeopathic amounts that have the best uptake. Because once you, when you overwhelm the system, it's like, what the fuck do I do with all of this? You know, like, it's just, it's just, it's just too much, you know? <laughs> and, and so uh, almost out of panic, a system could theoretically, reject something because it's just too much but in small amounts it could be just insidious enough to support maybe maybe the but the way i think of it i think probiotics you're adding you know 100 billion a day i think you're adding basically a product which is this microbial gook which is whereas if you're only in a small amount you're probably adding a microbe that actually can colonize and grow and then it can you know expand its influence that way just by a small amount because when, if you ingest a microbe and it can inhabit the gut, you can ingest one and it will rapidly grow into, you know, tens, billions, millions, trillions um, kind of thing because they can grow. And But I think the current probiotics are mainly added side joes because really it's just the microbial, um, you know, molecules that you're adding. You're not yeah. adding a, a seed that's going to grow. You're just taking the harvest as such. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And that's, that's kind of where I was leaning towards as well, which I, I think that sometimes at the smaller amounts, and we've seen this with di- different drugs. Uh, we also had, uh, a regenerative agriculture specialist, uh, talking about, um, uh, talking about, actually it was, uh, uh it was about Monsanto pesticides and, and things and saying that, yeah, they say that they, that the studies show that they use these huge amounts and that there was nothing 
to happen, but that's because, you know, the system, the, the organism died or, you know, it was so overwhelmed. It knew that it had to reject being the onslaught of all of this. But when they put it at the low amounts that they actually use it in nature, it becomes part of the matrix within the plant. So I kind of, I kind of lean sometimes, uh, in certain ways towards, you know, maybe us just going after the, the billions and trillions <laughs> of, of supposedly, uh, colonizing bacteria. Maybe we need to, to back down, uh, to what would, what the body would naturally mm-hmm. want well, we're to, also to take another up. trend where the idea is, you know, you would engineer probiotics. Well, let's say it's a pretty decent probiotic. Then you could say engineer it to produce, say, an anti-inflammatory while you're at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that there are several experiments going on in that area where you basically genetically engineer a probiotic. So with not only the probiotic, it has other other benefits too. And I think we'll see those come to market in a while. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm down with that yet, but I'll have to see what they come up with. <laughs> so. The data, I mean, don't don't. I mean, they're just you know, yeah. We'll, we'll see. Time will tell. I mean, I don't think there's any any study. Yeah, either. I mean, I, I'm 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 of the don't reinvent the wheel. Doing it. So I'm saying here's another way of potentially doing it. If, if right. you've got inflammatory bowel disease and this one actually works, I'm not going to argue with that if right. it works. Right, right. No, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, but I, I always feel I feel like we already have the answers in front of us, and and some of the experiments that are going on might be moving us further away from where we want to go uh, as opposed to in the, in the direction that we we're, we're hoping to head towards. Now, one, uh, we're going to have to wrap up kind of soon, but um, one thing I wanted to know is when at the outset, I talked about this kid eating horse poop, right? <laughs> and crayons. At what point do you, do, do, can a parent decide that this is healthy, dirty, and this is yeah. just nasty, you know, like, <laughs> you know, well, the, like common I'm, sense. I mean, you know, we certainly get down to the book, you know, let your kid play in the sandbox. But if there's cat, cat feces in the fan, sandbox, don't because we know that contains parasites, toxoplasma and stuff. And that's not good. So so you have to balance this sort of this germ avoidance with the idea of, of natural exposure. You know, we say in the book, for example, it's probably okay if a kid licks a floor in your house, but if they're licking the subway station floor, that's probably not a good idea, right? Yeah, I had a boyfriend Uh who sat down on the floor of the subway. We stopped dating. I was like, you're not bringing that in my house. I heard he's a dirty guy. (laughs) So so it's common sense. I mean, I think, you know, obviously we're not saying as soon as your kid's born, start shoveling as much dirt as you can down them. I mean, you know, we don't mean that at all, but we do mean, you know, natural microbial exposure. Because you would think how we evolved as a species, you know, go back kids, you know, 2,000, 10,000 years ago, what were they doing? They're running around playing outside, playing in the dirt. Now, you know, even in the last decade, the, the kids' screen time has doubled. The average kid spends seven hours a day in front of a screen. There's very little microbial exposure, you know, in that seven hours of that kid's life every day. And so I think... As a parent, you have to, you know, obviously, if, you know, you're playing with frogs, whatever, that's probably okay. But if the thing's dead and rotting and stinks, you know, don't go there. Right. Uh, you know, probably putting the odd rock in their mouth. The kid will figure out, well, that's not, not much point there to the first two and spit them out um, type things. So, so yeah, it really is. I guess my message is, you know, we've just gone too far in our hyper cleanliness, our attempt to bubble wrap our kids so they don't get exposed to any microbes because they might get sick. And I think the whole irony of it is they are getting sick because they're not getting exposed to microbes. We've got to ease off on that and sort of find the happy balance. 
you don't have to wash your kids' hands a hundred times a day. We're in the playground, you know. Right. I always joke. My brother and I had a contest. I grew up in an acreage, and every night we had to have our bath, which we hated. So the goal was how big a ring around the bathtub of dirt could you get? Like how good was your day? <laughs> Just you to make it. <laughs> you got that thing greater an inch. That was a good day's play, you know. <laughs> And so, you know, I think you, you got to balance these things, and, but, you know, just let kids be a little more, be kids and let them experience the, the natural world in terms of their microbes, because we know that they need that and we're not giving it to them yet. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I can, I can attest that uh, my mom was a nurse uh, trained in, in the fifties and early sixties and uh, growing up in the seventies for me, I was Gosh, I was so, I mean, I, there's a number of things that fed into it. Um, but yeah, you know, she was, she wasn't as crazy as people are today, but she was quite hygienic. You know, she taught us about hygiene and just not being gross. And, uh, I seem to have a lot of health problems that a lot of other kids didn't have at the time. Yeah, of know, course, now they all have those problems and I've gotten rid of most of my problems. So, <laughs> they, but. Oh, good. I'm glad to know you're problem free. That's yeah, nice. exactly. I mean, they've, they, it's, it's just very interesting to see where they've gone. And then as a result, my children are way healthier than I ever was at, at their ages. Right. And, um, and, you know, I look at many of my cousins and their kids and so on. And, and, you know, they're, it's, it's not a, it's not a pretty picture. It's not well, a pretty there, picture. There really is a split in society. There are those who are, I don't mean this insulting, but they're, you know, germaphobes. They were like your mother yeah. who was taught that, you know, everything has cleanliness is next to godliness. And there's a reason for that, right. avoiding infection. And there's others who are the other way. Well, I was you know, born and raised in the dirt, didn't hurt me, so can't hurt the kid to slop around a bit. And and it, it's interesting in society, there's kind of the two. And I think, you know, we, we got to find a moderate middle where, where we balance these things and let the kids... Let them let them be kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the, the, you brought up uh, something else in, in your book that you talk about is these hand sanitizers. No. Oh, yes. And yeah. like two years ago, a friend of mine, she thought she was being I mean, she was being nice. She gave my daughter a hand sanitizer. And, you know, I, I you get sick of just saying no to everything because you know better. Right. You know that it's not great, but it's, it was just like a little small tube. And it had, and the reason why she gave it to her was because it had this holder that had a pig or something on it, you know, some little cute animal right. character. So I'm like, okay, you can have it. So she's playing with it. Next thing I know, the bottle is gone. Like she's used everything in the bottle. My daughter's completely high. I turn the thing over and it's like 70% alcohol or something ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, my kid's drunk. She's only three. Like, <laughs> Starting early, <laughs> but yeah, she was totally she was totally drunk on this stuff. Well, so, that's actually probably a benefit. You know, long term hand sanitizer use is not good. I mean, as you know, the FDA has banned some of the antimicrobial agents because the studies show they don't do any good. They don't do any different than just soap and water. Right. So, regarding to washing, you know, it's soap and water. You know, maybe before meal time and after going to the bathroom or you know some other exposure that is sort of hanging around with a sick person, for example, you should probably wash your hands. But, you know, I've watched parents this weekend, you know, playing in the playground. Every time the kid got off the, off the monkey bars in the jungle gym, they had their had to have their hands all clean and sanitized before they go back to the next um, event out in the playground right. kind of thing. Yeah, no, That's just wrong. You don't need to do that. No. There's no reason for that. And actually, I think it's more harmful than good. But the problem is, I think most people think, and, and I don't blame them because I did until a few years too, that, you know, this is this is this is probably better for my kid. I mean, if it wasn't better for a kid, they wouldn't do it. They th at least they think it is. 
So we have to kind of change that way of thinking a bit. And that's kind of the main purpose of the book. Right, right, for sure. Well, it's a it's a fantastic book, and I certainly learned a lot. It gave me a lot more things to uh, to think about, and uh, just so many more ideas of how to integrate this in a sane way into into a, mm-hmm. my life. Uh, because you know, I've with my kids, yeah. yeah. I'm lucky if I remember to tell them to wash their hands before dinner. But, you yeah. know, in, in other ways, I I definitely am like, no, come on. And mostly it's, it's selfish, though, because, like, I don't want to freaking clean it up. <laughs> I don't want to clean up your mess. So don't make a mess if you don't want to clean it. Don't, don't, don't make a mess. But, um, you know, like, we keep the house basically hygienic. It's not always orderly, but... You know, I'd, yep. I'd rather have, you know, just the basic hygiene there. Um, and now we have now we have chickens, which I'm learning a whole other uh, yeah, yeah, they, they uh, way of exposing them. I remember as a kid, I Ridge, we had to clean the feces off the eggs where we'd eat them all the time. Oh, is that? Uh, I thought they came in styrofoam containers. I didn't know they were normally right. covered in feces. You got to wash them before you eat them, you know? What's that about? <laughs> and by the way, if I, this is what I've learned from my farming techniques. You spray lactic acid bacteria diluted in, in water and it, uh, it digests all the feces. So there's no feces in the, in the coop at all. Oh, you must have it. I don't know. Um, it's it's awesome. Big, big chunks of feces on these eggs. I remember, you know, getting a chisel out kind of thing. No, no, seriously, you will <laughs> be surprised. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised because you, this is what, this is your work, right? But, yeah. but, um, lactic acid bacteria, which is basically whey, <laughs> a, a teaspoon of that to a gallon of water, spray it around and smells everything goes, all of that funky stuff digests the poop and everything. Oh, it's just natural material. Makes yeah. Sense. yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so wacky and it's so cool. And, and like I said, it just so dovetails with everything that you've talked about in your book. Uh, chick- yeah. Yeah. And, chi- <laughs> and, and pigs. And pigtails too. I, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been, I've, I sat next, to, I sat about less than 10 feet away from a pig and had no idea it was there until it moved. Uh, because that's how effective, uh, these bacteria can be at cleaning the environment and, and, uh, taking the taking the smell out of poop. Well, even body odor, for example, you know, you, you yeah. don't stick. It's actually the microbes making these volatile fatty acids that could cause people to have body odor. Right. Um, it's actually the microbes doing it. So, yeah, yeah, and actually a lot of people are now using that same lactic acid bacteria as deodorant. Yeah, deodorant, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just, it's really uh, fascinating what's around us. And to some extent, how unnecessarily a lot of the uh, how unnecessary a lot of the things that we think we need from the drugstore, for example, are um, compared to the the microbiota around us. So, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Brett Finley. Uh, your PhD and what, what's your PhD in again? I forgot to write that down. Biochemistry. Okay, awesome. And he is the author of Let Them Eat Dirt. Uh, his website can be found at letthemeatdirt.com. Check out the book. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will see you on the interwebs. Thank you very much. See <laughs> All right, great. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at NutritionHeretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at NutritionHeretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. 
Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. Thank you.